Ah, Georgia, the land of wine, mountains, and kinkali. The country where people offer you borjomi, their fresh spring water that you'd assume was poured from the hands of Jesus himself into their expansive green lands, if you let them tell you. If you're ailing from anything, be it a tummy ache or a broken arm, borjomi will cure it, so they say. That wonderful country that held their own against Russian colonialists, Ottoman imperialists, and the Mongol conquests. Georgia, the nation on which oppression and tyranny was forced, but was always summarily rejected for democracy and freedom. The country where this black man from Detroit thought that he would be met by white people he knew in America, but was told that they, Georgians, were the real Caucasians. Georgia, whose people embrace me as their Chimomegobrabo, my brother. I'm Terrell Starr. This is my podcast, Black Diplomats. We're going to talk about my first impressions of Georgia when I first visited in the winter of 2003 to start my two-year Peace Corps stint and how I was able to witness history in the making later that year. I'm talking about the Rose Revolution that saw its leader, a young 35-year-old Columbia-trained lawyer, Mihail Saakashvili, lead hundreds of thousands of his fellow citizens out of years in political stagnation and corruption led by Georgia's second president, Edward Shevardnadze. I'll dig a little into how Saakashvili, who was affectionately known as Misha, led the nation through a rapid acceleration in political and economic prosperity, how he ruined it and lost that power in 2012 to another political party, Georgia Dream, and how they are in danger of losing that power some nine years later for the same reason Misha lost his power and the trust of Georgians, political greed and authoritarianism. From there, I'll talk to Eka Gigauri to discuss how different the political landscape is now from when I first visited in 2003 and how it has evolved. Eka is a civic activist and currently serves as the executive director of Transparency International Georgia. She also worked for Saakashvili's United National Movement Party as his deputy head of the border police, where she oversaw its modernization and cleaned up corruption. This is the Georgia I know y'all, and you're going to love it. So, how can I open up and talk about how wonderful Georgia is? I think it would be a good idea to talk about how I got there in the first place. I was a senior in college. I had just returned from spending the summer in Russia as a volunteer with the United Methodist Church. I wasn't proselytizing. I was in Russia in a village called Sviestroya, and it is in the St. Petersburg Oblast, a little village out of many. And I was volunteering, you know, teaching English and stuff like that. And once I returned from my senior year, which I completed in 2002, I wanted to go to Russia again, so I applied for Peace Corps and I was accepted to Russia. But 
about a year later, I was set to go to Russia, but the Russian government suspended the program there permanently. So I wasn't able to go and serve my Peace Corps years in Russia like I wanted. I ended up being transferred to Georgia and I was on a plane to this country that for one is the same name as a state in the United States. When I was telling people that I was going to Georgia, they all said, you're not going that far. I got cousins in the ATL and I had to kindly remind them that I don't think you have any cousins and there are certainly no Negroes where I'm going. But I found another type of diversity that fascinated me. The people of the Caucasus, the Georgians, who I would later learn have their own concept of identity and their own concept of race. I'll get into that later, but I'll just tell you what I was feeling when I first got there. Right now, Georgia is the crown gem of the Caucasus as far as its democracy, its economic and political development, its Western orientation to the European Union and NATO. It was none of those things when I first got there. What it did have was just vast beauty. When you flew into Georgia, you immediately saw that the mountains were just so wide and ranging and there was no place that you can look in that country where there was not a mountain. It was the winter and the roads are, they meander. So when we landed and we were picked up at the airport in Tbilisi, the capital, we were driven to this town um, and basically it was where we trained. It was about a few hours away and all I could imagine on that two hour plus ride to where we did our training was we're going to die because the roads were, they just twists and turned and you didn't see any guardrails and it was icy and it got to the point where I no longer looked outside and I just prayed to black Jesus that I would at least survive the car ride to our training site. And a lot of my fellow uh, trainees felt the same because uh, you, you're not technically a Peace Corps volunteer until you finish training and a lot of people dropped out. But at any rate, it was just an incredibly gorgeous country and as the spring grew into summer and as we completed our training and became Peace Corps volunteers you saw its beauty but one of the major issues that was ongoing in Georgia at the time was the political corruption and Edward Shevardnadze was the president at the time and Remember, this is 2003 and the Soviet Union fell in 1991. And so you're basically dealing with a country that was still reeling from the trauma of the Soviet Union ending 12 years earlier. So a lot of people were 
in a state of economic depression, um, political stagnation. What really sparked everything off was they had elections later in the year 2003 because I arrived in the spring of 2003. There were parliamentary elections and mass cheating and vote and violations took place and people went to the streets and they protested. At this time, I was in a village called Valley. That was my village in Georgia, Valley. It's about 45 minutes away from the uh, north east border of Turkey. So that was where I was located when these um, protests took place and they became known as the Rose Revolution. So Rose Revolution took place. A young Columbia trained lawyer, Mihail Saakashvili, we saw him on television. Me and my host family were there in, a, in our rooms together because we basically um, were watching everything unfold in Peace Corps. Uh, they had us on standby because they feared that we would have to evacuate the country because everyone was wondering if violence was going to take place. But you know what? It didn't. Saakashvili led the charge into the parliament. It was a very dramatic scene. And the reason why it was called Rose Revolution was basically protesters were giving the uh, security forces flowers and you saw a lot of people in the security forces they they pretty much put down their arms and they joined the protesters it was just beautiful right and you saw these people who are complaining about co political corruption and abuse of power and the police gave up protecting the state and joined the people and as somebody that comes from america where everybody thinks everything is perfect around the world like oh america is this great democracy and everyone gets along and as a black man i had to tell them you know that's actually not true and black people get killed by cops all the time and this is pre-ferguson so all this stuff wasn't captured on tape so it was just fascinating for me to see these georgians advocate and see immediate change in a switching government because Edward Shevardnadze gave up after a lot of negotiations with the United States and Russia and the European Union. He just gave up and then there was an election a few months later and Saakashvili took power. And I didn't know anything about Georgian politics. I'm just there witnessing this in my host family's living room. We were watching it together. But I remember that day when Edward Shevardnadze gave up power. My host father said, thank God he did not shoot into the crowds. That's important because as Georgians were fighting for their independence during the final days of the Soviet Union, the Soviet troops shot into the crowds back in the early 1990s pre-independence and killed a number of the protesters. And if you go to Georgia to this day, you go to parliament, you will see a commemoration 
uh, a lighted commemoration of the victims of that repression. So for them to see a peaceful transition of power in 2003, that was really a spectacular milestone for the country. And being a 24, well, I was 23 at the time. So as a 23-year-old black man from Detroit witnessing all this, I just marveled at it all because I just wished America could work like that. And then Saakashvili was very appealing. He was very charismatic. He spoke perfect English and he understood how to play the game in Washington, the whole nine yards. And I'm going to explain to you what it was like to live in Georgia at the time. So basically in my village, we had six hours of electricity and it would always come on at 6 PM and it would go away at 12 midnight on the spot. Not a minute sooner. Well, yeah, a minute sooner. Sometimes it would go off before that. <laughs> but certainly by midnight, the electricity was gone. Because there was electricity shortages around the country. And anytime it would go away, my whole sister would say, Shuki Tzavida. The Shuki is left. We also didn't have running water in many of the homes in my village. And it was the same thing across the country. There are some places that didn't have any running water. And if the water came, it would come through a spigot in the back of the building once a week. That was the case in the section of my village. So I lived on, um, I, I started off with a host family for a couple of months. And then I eventually moved out on my own. And in my building, the water would come once a week. And I lived on the third floor. The way that we all had to carry and preserve our water was we all had plastic garbage cans. And each of us had to stand in line, get a bucket, and fill that can up to the best of our ability or to the capacity at which we could carry it up different flights of stairs. And that process would take a good hour. I'm the American. People felt sorry for me. So they usually let me get a couple of buckets <laughs> in my garbage can. And then I would step out of the way and let other people do it. And we would also have to help each other carry our garbage pails of water to our apartments. So that was a bit of community building around a lack of resources. And it, it, it also was a village where a lot of the homes were dilapidated and they looked abandoned, but people lived there because there was no money for renovations. People were dirt poor. If you can make $100 in a week, you are lucky, extremely lucky. If you can make that, a lot of men, a lot of women were out of work. The roads were atrocious. 
a city that should only take you 30 minutes to get to could take as long as two hours. This is just some of the situations that were happening there, right? So in a few years after Misha took power, everyone had 24 hours electricity and running water and heat in the schools. But when I first got there, my assignment was, a, was to be a teacher of English. And I had a teaching counterpart and we would uh, co-teach. In the schools, everyone was freezing. So there was never a day during the winter where you could take your coat off because it was so cold. As far as heat, you use wood stoves. In Georgian, you call them pechies. So, and you had to chop the wood. So it was a, it was very labor intensive. And if you were someone who had a disability or something like that, you were going to struggle. So just imagine going to school in America and there is no heat, no anything. And I'm, you know, I, yeah, I mean, we have issues in America too, but the point is that you had all these things happening in Georgia. So the country was in dire need of repair from infrastructure standpoint. And as I finished my two year stint there, I was able to watch Saakashvili. And one of the things that he did was he rooted out corruption. Every other day you saw people going to jail. And this man was like, a darling everyone loved him people would kiss him on the cheek and you know it, it was <laughs> it was almost like he was black jesus or something i don't know i mean people loved him but the problem started towards the end of his first term where he started adapting very authoritarian style tendencies he was accused of being very um, resistant to feedback from opposition parties. And he was accused of abusing political opposition, jailing political opposition. His party was, was, was accused of mass instances of corruption, land grabbing. Um, they were accused of stealing as well. But what was really hard to notice about it was that you saw all these developments in the country you saw the electricity you saw the water you saw all these basic things that people lacked Saakashvili gave them and he made it a cool place to visit again if you can speak English and if you're a leader from this part of the world it makes all the difference he sold Georgia as this majestic place that you can come to and explore the mountains. And they had a really good PR team. They had everyone in their ministries could speak perfect English because all of them attended school in America or England. And a lot of their ministries in America, we call them departments. They ran as efficiently or in some instance, more efficiently than those in America. If you went in to file a complaint about something, you could get an update on your cell phones. Now, mind you, 
smartphones in the early 2000s were pretty new. But from a technological standpoint, Georgia was ahead of the curve in many ways. But you had all of this corruption taking place in 2000, even even in the two, you know, in 2005, 2006. And so complaints against Saakashvili grew where people were protesting um, again, you know, lack of transparency and you saw major protests that were broken up by cops um, that were uh, where tear gas was used and kind of some of the similar ways in which cops break up protests here in America and people were outraged because they were saying this is not what you promised us it got so bad to the point where in 2012 he was forced out of office and basically he lost the um lost parliamentary elections and basically georgia dream came in with bitzina um uh, ivanishwili and he's a billionaire who made all of his money in russia right but Saakashvili, um, years later, was eventually convicted of abuse of power, um, convicted in absentia, and he is no longer able to go to Georgia without being arrested, basically. So it's one of those situations where he started off as his big time reformer, but he ended up leaving in disgrace but it's a very complex thing so i finished my peace corps service in 2005 and even though the country was much better when i first started there's this stain over his legacy but the moral to this story is that saikashwili came in and took power because Edward Shirinadze was corrupt, became authoritarian. When Saakashvili took power, he developed some of those same tendencies. And then the new party under Ivanishvili, the billionaire, came in and said that we're not going to do what Saakashvili did. But now, and this is kind of going into my conversation with Eka Gigauri. Uh, the activist and the executive director of Transparency International. Georgia Dream has been accused of the very same tendencies of corruption and abuse of power that Saakashvili dealt with. And so now what you're seeing in Georgia is a repeat where in last October of 2020, there were parliamentary elections and the opposition decided that they were going to sit out because they accused the ruling party, Georgia Dream, of rigging the election before it started. And what does that mean? It means that they set up the parliamentary system it's a mixed system where they have proportional votes and they have these basically these party lists and it's a whole bunch of stuff that gets into the weeds. But basically what you need to know is that the the mixed system makes it very difficult 
for the opposition to have any influence in the parliament. And so they decided that because they had no power and no influence and because they felt like the Georgia Dream Party, which is the ruling party since 2012, rigged the election and engaged in harassing and pressuring state employees to support their party. They sat out of parliament and it's only been in the past week that they've returned. I actually wrote a story about this for Foreign Policy Magazine and the link will be in the show notes of this episode. But they returned to parliament and some of the key issues are that some of the major opposition leaders, i.e. the opposition leader for the United National Movement, Sai Kashwili's party, um, was jailed earlier this year. And they jailed him because of his alleged activity in a 2019 protest in which he is accused of inciting a riot. And that UNM, that UNN, um, the United National Movement chairman, um, Nika Melia, he was arrested. He denied those charges. So Parliament is back now because they decided that after six months, we've made our points. The European Union brokered a deal between the opposition and the ruling Georgia Dream Party that. Basically, they have to carry out a number of reforms that they all shook hands on and it's all on the document. So everyone is hoping that over the next two weeks, all the reforms that were on this EU brokered document could be fulfilled so that not only is Nika Melia and other people who are considered political prisoners released, that they get amnesty and so that they cannot be charged with anything in the future connected to what they've been jailed for. But then also, uh, there's also an issue because Georgia has a police brutality problem and it predates Georgia Dream. And right now, uh, civil civil society people say, are saying that the issue with policing brutality, um, the abuse of power is worse than it's ever been. Under Saakashvili, for example. So Georgia is always in this crossroads where every eight years, every 10 years or so, someone who assumes power and says that we're not going to be corrupt like the other guy ends up being corrupt like the other guy. And now the country is looking forward towards a coalition government where no single person is able to take control of everything and then fuck it up, basically. Why do I find this fascinating? Well, it's because even though this every eight year to 10 year cycle is tumultuous, I really admire why people go through this because they say I'm not happy with it and we need to change. I don't know about you, but I wish that the people, all of us as Americans could rise up and say, you know what? I'm not satisfied with our country. 
I wish that we all could say, you know what? You're killing too many black people for no reason. And if you do not carry out these reforms in this amount of time, we're going to take your power away from you immediately. Well, you know, some racist white people under racism, they tried to storm the White House. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about. I just wish that we could all get together and say, you know what? You can't shield people from the voting booth. Because your party lost. I wish America would have a rose revolution. The closest thing that America has to a rose revolution was the Ferguson uprisings and the Black Lives Matter movement. Unfortunately, unlike the Rose Revolution, the Ferguson uprisings and the Black Lives Matter movement, those movements and uprisings result in black death and black blood. That's the tragic part of it. And I just wish that we as a society can learn something from the Georgians, but the Georgians are united. They're also um, a bit more, they're, they're, they're homogenous. We're, they're, they are a pretty homogenous folk and they don't have the same history of racism in our country. But I'm just saying that I wish that we could hope a little bit, you know? I'm going to talk to Eka Gigauri so that she can update us on what's going on with Georgian politics today. And we're also going to go down memory lane to talk about the Georgia that we knew close to 20 years ago and how it's evolved and what we all remember from that Georgia and what we're all hoping for Georgia to turn into in this next iteration of politics. So I'll just lead us straight into that conversation. Wow. Do you remember the first time I came to your office? Uh, now I can recall this meeting, but, but until you did not like, you know, remind me. So I, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so you look the same. <laughs> ah, thank you. <laughs> How are you doing? Fine. So and TI is bigger now than it was in 2010. So uh, we had only one office and uh, 10 or 11 people working for us. But now it's around 60 people um, and uh, uh, seven offices around the country. So that's why, yeah, we are bigger now and uh, more visible. So and more successful, I would say. It's just so interesting how things change. It just shifted from one. You had the Saakashvili government, then it converted to Georgia Dream, and then now it feels like we're talking about similar things, but with different people, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, in 2000, I left the government. It was 2008, actually, and um, it was November 2008. At that time, uh, one could uh, see that uh, the UNM had lots of problems with the human rights. And, uh, uh, you know, also me being in the office, I faced difficulties to defend my, my people, like working for me. 
um, some of them who had different opinions from the ruling party, you know, and uh, uh, more and more at that time, the government was using the different tools, even like, you know, people could be dismissed from the offices for participating in the demonstration or something like this. And for me, it was not acceptable. Like, you know, I, from one side, I was uh, a very successful public official, like, you know, really dealing with anti-corruption reforms after the Rose Revolution. And like, you know, the migration and the border police was very successful agency at that time. We didn't have big budget, but we were very successful. And even now, when we have this uh, visa-free uh, with Europe, so with the EU countries, so we, uh, I, I can say that majority of the laws and some regulations were uh, done by uh, by my team, you know, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm really proud, uh, uh, like you know, we're, we're, with all these things but at the same time of course um, especially in 2008 we were facing a big problems with justice system and with uh, um, with um, uh, the violation of human rights that's why i left actually and after that actually i was also the uh, kind of attacked by uh, by at that time the government and like you know calling me and threatening me and my family and all this so i i went through uh, these things, uh, and I then I went to to Netherlands to uh, made my second master's degree, and when I came back, so I joined TI. So that was like you know kind of my story after the uh, the UNM government. But now, yeah, you are right. So we are facing the same problems here, um, um, like uh, problems with the justice system. Uh, again, the politically motivated investigations against some oppressions and uh, uh, threats on uh, the political activists and those who have different opinion from the government. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I can say that uh, now the difference is that we have uh, critical media, uh, and this is something like you know that we did not have during the. Uh, UNM uh, in government, but uh, well, the problem here is that all these media representatives are now under the investigation, and again, it's politically motivated investigations. These are not the fair investigations. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we have still lots of problems in Georgia, uh, although, of course, if we compare the country uh, what kind of country we had before the Rose Revolution, definitely we have kind of uh, lots of positive developments here, but still we have many challenges in the country. Right, I wanna get into that because I remember when I first arrived in Georgia in 2003, uh, I was in Peace Corps at that time and our Peace Corps staff would tell us about the Kuchas BJB <laughs> and right, right, and going down Rooster Valley, there were different pockets or that we were told to be aware of because the guys would come and try to either pickpocket you or you would get robbed, right? There were parts of that main street that didn't have good lighting or anything because people who go to Georgia right now, they see all this cool stuff. But when we came like 18 years ago, it was... <laughs> 
it was a different world, right? And I just looking at it right now, it's easy to take for granted. It is where 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 Georgia came from, right? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, and from one side, it's of course for the, uh, the new generation, it's good that they don't remember that time, you know, And but I remember, I even remember the Soviet Union, like, you know, that I want to forget. <laughs> so a school girl and like, you know, really uh, having these uh, pioneers and some, some other organizations uh, inside of the school and like, you know, had to kind of be addicted to this, like Lenin and Stalin and all these people. But then like, you know, this 19s when it was failed state and corruption everywhere, no electricity and gas, it was so cold. Like, you know, it was so cold uh, to, to sit in the school because there was no heating during the winter. And uh, yeah, these boys standing outside of the school and then on the streets and they could rob you. Uh, so many of them were uh, were under the uh, drug addict, so they they it's kind of we call them kind of lost generation because many of them, uh, for many of them it was very difficult to get the proper education and to like you know go through this system because you had to be part of this gangsters group or like you know you had to like really behave like uh, like uh, they did. So and. Um, um, yeah, and after the, the, the Rose Revolution, really, you know, lots of changes. I remember my my room, you know, with the border police, there were no infra nothing, like one, uh, one chair and then like, you know, simple, like, you know, table and nothing there, like, you know, really no heating again, nothing, like no computer. And then how we try to build the state from the scratch. So that was really a very interesting experience. And uh, yeah, and uh, now I'm thinking that, you know, we had like really big chance also. We could like, we could do a little bit more with the justice system again. So, and, you know, apparently when there is, um, uh, where the power corrupts, you know, at that time, uh, the, the, the UNM was very powerful uh, um, uh, party. And then, you know, when you don't have the checks and balances system, you know, at some point, like you really need, this, you know, the, the balance and the check from outside. And when you don't have it, so then, you know, problems come. Tell me what's going on right now in the parliament. Like, has United National Movement returned yet? Has Georgia Dream returned yet? Like, what's going on now? So we actually have uh, the crisis for the last uh, six months, uh, I would say, uh, after the, um, the uh, parliamentary elections, uh, uh, which were not really good elections, uh, many violations uh, during the elections and really the uh, kind of um, uh, step backwards, because if we can, uh, compare these elections with the elections managed or administrated by the Georgian Dream previously, these were the worst elections uh, under the Georgian Dream. So that's why uh, this, this was the step backwards. Uh, um, um, although, um, of course, the parties could campaign, um, and uh, we, as I said, we have also critical media, so they had the access to the critical media and like, you know, could communicate their program priorities and all this. So that's why 
uh, in many reports, uh, in many international reports, it says that uh, fundamental freedoms were like ensured, but at, at the same time, you know, we had uh, many irregularities uh, during the election, in pre-election period, during the elections, and then afterwards when, when uh, the votes were counted. So uh, after that, uh, the opposition boycotted the parliament. They said that they are calling on uh, the snap elections, um, then started uh, these negotiations where the US and EU uh, was moderating, and then uh, now we have the agreement, which was signed by majority of uh, the opposition parties and the Georgian Dream, uh, the ruling party, and the, the UNM. Yeah, in between, of course, oh, this is this should be mentioned that the leader of the the biggest uh, the, the opposition party was arrested, Mr. Melia. So Mr. Melia at this point is uh, uh, in the prison now, and that's why. Uh, the uh, UNM uh, did not enter the parliament and they did not sign this agreement yet. But as I said, the majority of the, uh, of the opposition parties actually signed this uh, agreement. And so this agreement actually shows uh, how many problems we have in the country. There's good faith. There's not a document that is that's enacting on. They're supposed to enact all of these, um, all, all of these points. And so um right now i think now they're still hashing it out they're still discussing it now yeah yeah so it's not like really the whole doc yeah the document itself but like you know for many uh people uh like you know we are professionals we are, work we are working on these uh, areas and i will list those areas and i think that it's a very good agreement uh, but like you know for people people still some people have uh, questions whether it was right decision from the opposition uh, to sign this maybe the solution is uh, the snap elections and the opposition should uh, like you know request a call of the snap elections and there is no need to have such agreement but what this agreement says actually actually and this is very good evaluation and assessment of the situation in Georgia is that two politically two like you know so-called political prisoners or those who were arrested based on the politically motivated investigations uh, they should be released and amongst them is the Mr. Melia so and they are also this investigation is uh, um, kind of uh, yeah there are many questions uh, during the investigation and so on so I think that this is this was like really politically motivated then it says that uh, the Georgian government actually should fix the problems related to the judiciary and there are like you know concrete steps there so it means that our judiciary is not in a good shape, right? Then there is another point about the electoral system and some particular changes in electoral uh, legislation, which says also that we have big problems in the elect uh, electoral legislation and implementation. It also says that we should uh, um, um, uh, appoint the chief prosecutor uh, based on the agreement uh, between the ruling party and the opposition. And it says, it, it means that our prosecutor's office is biased and under the political influence. And it says also about, talks about um, 
uh, about the power sharing in the parliament. Generally, like, you know, from one side, the Georgian Dream was asking the opposition to enter the parliament, but from the other side, they don't really have lots of powers inside of the parliament. So, for instance, none of the uh, committees are chaired by the opposition, and so opposition is not really involved in political processes uh, and can cannot influence the political processes in the parliament. So. That's why, like, you know, it's very interesting document. I think that it's good that it was signed. It's also acknowledgement from the side of the ruling party that this is like really the problems. And it's shame for them also that the international community should like, you know, tell you and put these points in the document that you should do this. It's their, their uh, responsibility to do this. And this, for the last nine years, they are in the government. They can, could do this really. But um, I think that, yes, the main topic of discussion now is that um, whether the amnesty law, because the, uh, Mr. Belia should uh, release the prison, should be released based on the amnesty, whether this amnesty is like, you know, the right choice and uh, good idea, because under the amnesty, there will be other people also, including those people who were uh, um, who, against whom there is the investigation, these are policemen who actually violated the law and abused their like you know power and used not like um, uh, not uh, kind of legitimate uh, arms against the demonstrants and this demonstration was against the occupation right i want to stop right there that part because that's a good point so one of the things that um georgi kandalaki who you know of the uh european georgia one because you correct me if I'm wrong. He, you know, he said that they were completely against the document at all because of the wording. And he said that he and his party, um, at least a lot of his members, because from my understandings, I think some of his members assigned the document or they returned to parliament as individual MPs, even though the party officially has not returned. Um, I don't know because so many things are changing just really fast, but Kondalaki told me that he did not want any of those officers to get amnesty at all. He just basically, it should just be for the political prisoners because basically as it's written, according to him, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, you want your prisoners, you, you want your, cause you know, you know, Georgia dream doesn't consider them political prisoners. He's like political prisoners with quotes. Right. Because he basically told me that they were criminal. Um, uh, a representative from Georgia, from Georgia Dream, told me that um, Nika Melia and the other person whose name I forgot, he said that they are criminals who happen to be in politics or have to who, who, or who have political leanings. That's what he told me. But 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 um, but anyway, it's like, OK, in this agreement, you want your political prisoners to go. We're going to let these officers go. So it was like a it was like a bouncing out, so to speak. Is that does that sound correct? Uh, I mean, I think that it's very complicated uh, issue in general. So I, as a uh, uh, human rights defender, of course, I uh, my position is that um, everyone should be accountable for what they did. Uh, uh, but uh, at the same time, it is political document, you know, and. Uh, 
polit and uh, 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 for, for me is like you know now I'm trying to find the way after this document will be adopted uh, to how to make sure that those uh, uh, perpetrators uh, will be uh, punished you know and I think that it will be still possible and this is like you know because it's political document you know because uh, the political agreement was very important because like you know Melia should be out because it was the only way for him to be out and he's the leader of the main opposition party and this is very important for him to be out now we have the local elections in several months so he should run for the office so that's also but at the same time uh, so that's why like you know legally it's I we can evaluate and analyze this uh, this uh, document legally but it is political document you know uh, signed by the politicians but for us of course we will try our best to find a way and I think that it's possible to make sure that especially those who are from the government side because this is uh, it is very important to make sure that the, the police, knows that they can't violate the law that they can't like you know use the arms against the demonstrants that they will be at some point accountable for this and for them to show the like example and case that you know to, to, to for them to act properly in the future so that's that's very important for us but yeah i mean i think that um this is for what we are going to do and it's very important to do and also uh, what is uh, uh, what is uh, important to mention here is that none of the policemen actually uh, uh, was arrested, and there is no investigation against those policemen who actually damaged the demonstrants hardly, like you know, who really used the arms and who damaged the uh, the uh, the uh, equipment of the media also, and were like you know really shooting shooting the. Um, uh, the um, uh, like you know the the media representatives right and several young um, activists who like you know were severely damaged during the demonstration so people who did that to uh, these particular people are not arrested there is no investigation against them and there was never political we didn't have political will for so many years to arrest these people and to start the investigation against those people. And the articles we are talking about in this amnesty law, these are different articles, you know? And mm, because, uh, you know, those who actually severely damage the demonstrants against them, there should be um, different investigation initiated. So that's why kind of we try to find the way to make sure that those who like were like really uh, involved in like you know severely damaging the demonstra demonstrants be accountable and I think that there is a way to uh, to make right. uh, this like to ensure this right because okay. you brought up a good point not only this is a political this is as much a political document as it deals with the human rights element and everything but that's very important that's something that as I was writing my article for foreign policy I didn't think about it that way. So thank you for really breaking that down. But I want to get into the opposition 
wants to pursue coalition governments because you told me for the article and other people with the exception of Georgia Dream who I will eventually speak to is that anytime one person gets powered they mess it up and what does a coalition government look like from your perspective because I'm I'm interested in how the Georgian people are responding to this because everybody thinks that in these upcoming regional elections in October that they're going to win. The opposition says we're going to win. We're going to get this 43% threshold. And for those who don't know what I mean by 43% is you must get 43% of the vote to get the majority um you know, to, you know, to get that majority rule and correct me if I'm wrong, because there's so many things happening. But also, uh, Georgia Dream says that we don't need a coalition government and we have this pandemic and we need to have one party as opposed to these different factions fighting each other over how over decisions. But tell me about what a coalition government would look like and if Georgians have an appetite for it. You know, I think that uh, for everyone now, it's uh, uh, it's uh, so clear that for many years we had this monolithic type of like you know parties, one man on the top, and then everyone is kind of like you know uh, trying tries to like follow his uh, orders and his kind of like charismatic person, and he knows better what the people need. So. Uh, and I think that now we are kind of like, you know, uh, we are adult enough to try to bring some like, you know, some other people, other groups with different opinion uh, in the room and um, like working on the new experiences and practices where, you know, people just should sit and discuss and agree and like, you know, be above of the like, you know, political uh, only party interests and like, you know, really think more about the country interests. So, uh, and this is like, you know, where we are going now and the new electoral system also gave us opportunity to like, you know, put, uh, to, to get more people, more parties in the parliament now. And I think that it will be very painful process because like, you know, everyone thinks that they know better and all this, but I think that we as a country and we as a public should go through this, you know, and at some point, I think that the public is um, even more adult than the politicians here, you know, and they sometimes, you know, at some point they can say that, okay, like, you know, we are fed up with this never ended, like, you know, kind of like, you know, the, the discussions or like, you know, the share of arguments and you just should take the final decision. And I think, and I expect this from Georgian public. So that's why I think that uh, if it happens, like, you know, and it is um, uh, very much uh, dependent on how, like, you know, these points in this agreement will be implemented and there is this electoral reform as well. and if it will be properly implemented, of course, we are going to this right direction. And this uh, brings us even more diversity, uh, gives us more diversity. 
so the I think that uh, yeah, I mean it will be painful. It will be very painful, uh, long discussions. But we should go through this. You know, we should we we should go uh, we we should go uh, through this way and uh, also learn so something from the mistakes. And uh, I think that this is the right right way to go. One of the things that makes me optimistic about all of this is that. I feel like the Georgian people, per going to your point, they're a bit more mature than the elected officials, and I'm confident that they make the right choices. I think Georgian voters are very intelligent uh, voters about what they want, because as tumultuous as all of this is, none of what's happening now makes me believe that the country will backslide to what I saw when I first came to Georgia and what you experienced back in 2003 and before. I feel like the Georgian people will not allow that because I think that regardless of who is in power, the Georgian people will go to the streets because your civil society is still very strong. I go to Ukraine and... Even uh, Ukrainian society, civil society is very strong. It's a very different cultural and political dynamic. There is vastly different, but, and I'm confident in theirs too. But um, what I see in Georgian civil society that I often don't see in a lot of societies around this region is that you just, there is no, I don't see any segment of, jo of the Georgian population that would accept any form of Russian rule, like zero. I don't see any of it, right? And I also, and just the mentality of talking to regular people, people would rather pick up their pitchforks and fight than to accept any type of, of, of Russian influence at all. I wrote in my article that anybody that is pro-Russia party, they're dead on arrival, like they're not going to be accepted. And so that's, I, I feel a lot of confidence. It's going to be interesting to see these regional elections because we know that after, well, moving forward, there will be proportional parliamentary elections. Well, it's supposed to be, right? That's supposed to be implemented. It's, I don't know if that's written yet, but again, I, I just goes back to the civil society. I feel like it's very strong. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, uh, although like, you know, we have very strong uh, Russian propaganda here and uh, they really do their best. Uh, still, you know, it's, it's so funny, even from the Georgian dream and the opposition that they call each, itself, uh, each other pro-Russian. So it's so bad to be pro-Russian. It's so bad in this country that like, you know, no one wants to get this, uh, this name or like, you know, and uh, be perceived like this. So, and uh, yeah, that's why pro, like really pro-Russian parties call them themselves pro-Georgian so because it's again it's not popular so it's not so they're trying to say they're nationalists so like when you say pro-Georgian that's like we are a we're nationalists but we're not pro-Russia yeah so saying that oh yeah. we care more about the Georgian traditions and this is the U.S. and EU and they are against the Georgian traditions and you know I mean this, mm. this is this is their message box actually 
Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, we, um, like the public is very smart and uh, very wise uh, in Georgia and they feel like, you know, they feel what, for the, uh, what is needed for the country and what is the right way. And the only thing that we like really need more, uh, more support, like, you know, open support from uh, our Western partners. Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes we feel like, you know, there, there are so many things going on in the world that, you know, they don't have time for us, but uh, not everyone, I would say. And, um, um, but uh, like I had the meeting with the, the, the other day with the uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania. So and definitely like the Baltic countries uh, are like our big friends and they always uh, remind everyone that we should become the NATO members. But like, uh, you know, but still uh, it's, uh, it's very uh, needed uh, also to count the Russian propaganda who always says that, oh, you know, you, the West, uh, they do not care about you. They don't have time for you and you will never become the members of NATO and you. So that's why uh, it's also... What, what, you know, what, why don't we, you know, anytime they say that, my response would be take your tanks out of my country, leave South Ossetia, leave Abkhazia and I, I would tell them that and I'm pretty sure they would they 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 would they would um they would act like they didn't hear me yeah you know? I mean uh, uh, this is uh, this is uh, yeah what happens uh, but uh, yeah and of course I me personally don't have doubts uh, that our western partners uh, remember about us and we are like really very important uh, uh, partners uh, for them in the region, especially. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, still, it's it's good to have the vis visible, I would say, visible uh, kind of uh, support. But definitely, people feel that when it comes to the support of our economy or the like, you know, so many students are getting funding from the from our Western partners. And the scholarships and all this, I think that, uh, yeah, definitely there are proofs that uh, we are not alone in this fight. And my last question to you is, I, w I still want to go back to what's happening right now. So the political prisoners, they're still in jail. One of them, one of them, only Melia. So Rurua, yesterday, uh, the day before yesterday, Rurua was released. So that's uh, okay. that was also part of the agreement that is free now. Okay, so is there any sign of when Melia is going to be released? So after the adoption of the uh, amnesty law, which is uh, which will need uh, like uh, two weeks, maybe two weeks maximum. Uh, but this is like you know, yeah, well, I think that the two two weeks uh, he might be out. Okay, sounds good. And all right, Eka, listen, I, I enjoyed talking to you today. We went down memory lane and we talked about some of your work. So, look, I, I definitely appreciate you coming on to update us. And I would love to have you on again. And when I come to Georgia this summer, hopefully I can see you. With pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eka. This is my second week where I'm opening up with my commentary for the first 20 minutes or so and then going into an interview and closing it out. I hope you like it. I'm still getting comfortable with it, but I definitely would appreciate your feedback to let me know 
how you like the new change and things that you would like me to improve on. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Black Diplomats. We definitely appreciate you listening to our episodes each week. We work really hard on making them better and better as we go along. We also need some support, so if you would be so kind as to find us under Black Diplomats on Patreon, please go and do so and give whatever you can. Also go to your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes especially, give us a five-star rating and leave a great review for us because that really helps us to scale up in the ranks and people know who we are. I appreciate y'all again. This is my podcast and I'll see y'all next week.